and we're going to read um, the Gospel of John and uh, chapter 17, uh, beginning at verse 1 and through verse 5. John chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. Here's what John says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you and know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Lord, help us today as we contemplate, Lord, what you prayed uh, there in the upper room with the disciples in preparation for your um, betrayal and for, uh, Lord, that arrest and all the things that were going to take place. Lord, help us to... To, to really marinate in this chapter, Lord, for the next few weeks. Lord, may you reveal things to us, Lord, so that we can be more conformed to your image. Help us, Lord, to see how you want us to grow and change. And Lord, may I simply be a faithful messenger, uh, Lord, a mouthpiece for this text, Lord, to speak into our lives. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Amen. Let me uh, ask you to be seated now, and uh, let's uh, think through where we are in John's Gospel. Um, we have already finished 16 chapters. Can you believe it? 16 chapters. That, you know, it's almost like we're, we're, we're heading to the end. The goal, though, is not just to get done. The goal is to continue to allow God's Word to have its way in us. And when we come to a, a chapter like this, it is not an isolated chapter. It's not disconnected from its context. And it's important that we recognize as we come to this particular chapter that... Um, what we have here in verse 1, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, well, what words? It's the whole upper room discourse. So we've had a, a few chapters here of Jesus sitting down with his disciples, pouring his heart out with his disciples because they are going to be going through some difficult times. His hour is coming. The time of his crucifixion is near. And that is going to rattle and shake their world. And so Jesus has taken time to instruct them, to comfort them, to give them perspective, to encourage them. And uh, we, we find that that upper room time now finished out with Jesus offering this prayer. And I, I also want you to notice the posture of Jesus in this prayer. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. All right. Now, what does that look like? Well, he's sitting there and he's looking up to heaven. Now, just want to caution you. This is... What he does, and this is part of the, I might want to say, tradition of how in that Hebrew culture, that's what, how they would address the Father, that's how they would pray. Um, but we need to be careful that being like Jesus does not necessarily mean that we always have the same posture. But we can learn here that there is an importance to our posture in prayer. We're serious about what we're doing. Sometimes that posture can be very contrite, and you're bowing your head, and you're humble before God, and you're kind of... You're, 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 you're bent over because you are contrite, you're humble, you're concerned. Sometimes you're coming to God with your arms stretched out. Anyone ever done this before? No, 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 not 
uh, we've got really conservative people here, right? So, we, no, sometimes you do that. Sometimes you, you, you say, God, you know, I don't know what's going on. And so your, your body is expressing what's, what's going on in your heart. And so posture is just a, a natural part of prayer, and Jesus does that. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, you go to different, in different cultures, you know, you go maybe to in parts of Europe when there's a funeral, and people... You know, it's not, it's, it's, not a, it's not a proper funeral unless there's a lot of noise, right? A lot of crying, a lot of emotions expressed. We're here in the States, a proper funeral is what? You know, you're telling your kids, shh, be quiet, be quiet, right? Because you don't want to make any noise because in our culture, it's almost disrespectful to make noise. And so there are cultural things that are going on here, and I think cultural things also shape how we, how we pray. But we've got to be careful that they don't inhibit our prayer. And there's something that we see as we, as we look at the, the prayers in God's word, that there, there, there is a lot of um, significance to the posture. And, and, and the only point I want to say is that your prayer isn't going to be more powerful if you get on your knees and you get calluses, okay? Your prayer is going to be more effective if you are simply crying out from your heart. And oftentimes that comes with a physical response too, okay? Your head being raised up, your head bowed over, your arms stretched, your arms together, something like that. So just kind of kind of get the perspective here. Here, Jesus is praying, okay? Now, if you are uh, like me, um, I, I think you will probably agree that prayer is a spiritual discipline that most honest Christians recognize as a weakness in their lives. I, I don't know that I have met too many people that are just saying, like, you know, my prayer life is just great. And, you know, I'm just, I am so thrill with my prayer life. I'm just so consistent, I, you know, and I, my, the extent of my prayers, the quality of my prayers, the effectiveness of my prayers, the consistency of my prayers, that my prayers are proper. I, I think that the opposite would be true. I think we're often questioning whether, uh, whether what we're doing is actually appropriate or is it, is it right or is it consistent. We struggle with that, okay? And so we have an opportunity in the next few weeks as we go through this particular chapter, it is the high priestly prayer of Jesus to ask some questions about prayer. How is it done? And what are some things that we can learn about prayer? Now, it's possible to have a distorted understanding of prayer and why we are commanded to do it. We are told to ask, to seek, and to knock. Um, we are told to pray without ceasing. We are told to pray for one another, and we could go on there. But we also see the characters in the Bible of uh, seeking God in prayer. And the one particular character that I think that we really need to pay attention to, of course, is Jesus, right? And his prayer. Now, Jesus had a habit of praying, didn't he? And you see that throughout the Gospels. Go out and do ministry, and oftentimes he would go to a quiet place and he would pray, sometimes with the disciples, sometimes without the disciples. And so here we have the most, uh, the fullest um, record of um, him praying. And so this prayer is, is known as his high priestly prayer because he's not just praying about himself, he's also praying as an intercessor um, for his disciples and ultimately for us. Now, that's why we are calling this the Lord's Prayer. This really is the Lord's Prayer as opposed to the Lord's Prayer that is actually the disciples' prayer, right? So just kind of get that clarification here. This is really the Lord's Prayer. Now, we can divide it into three parts. I think you will see as you read through this prayer, it naturally flows into three parts. Jesus, first of all, 
is praying for himself. Um, and then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for all who through the ministry of the disciples come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that would be us, right? We would be included in that group. So what's, what's powerful here is that in Jesus' prayer, we're there. He actually ultimately is praying for us. And we're going we're gonna to take our time by dividing our, our time each Sunday into these three categories. Today we're going to focus on Jesus praying for himself. Now, as we come to this particular study on, on prayer and Jesus' prayer, uh, there's three words I want us to be thinking about. I, I want you, first of all, to listen to Jesus' words. So there's a sense in which as you read it, I want you to observe. I want you to take it in. I want you to, to kind of uh, get a sense of what Jesus is saying to the Father in this prayer. Secondly, I want you to learn from his example. Not just the example physically, but the example of how he prays and for whom he prays. And what is he praying for? And then finally, I, I want you to, um, uh, to, to think about the word lean. Because I want you to ultimately, and I think for all of us, to lean on the Father. That's what he is ultimately doing. He's coming in prayer not just to have a chat. He's coming in prayer because there is something weighty that is before him. And he is leaning on his father as he prepares for that weighty thing, okay? And so these words, to listen, to learn, and then to lean. And there's a sense in which we're, we're going to be instructed about how we lean then on the father in the context of our prayers. So what is important to note here um, as we begin is the fact that it is Jesus who is praying as well as the timing of the prayer. Just think about this, Jesus why is Jesus praying? I mean, he's, he's God. Why would Jesus pray? All right, there's no bracelets around that say, you know, that, but um, just that'll, that'll settle in, okay? All right? All you taking your Live Strong bracelets off, you can put the why, why would Jesus pray bracelets on now. Um, but why would he pray? And, and, and I think that's something we have to wrestle with because if he is God, we're kind of confused as to why he would pray. And I think there's a, there's a couple of reasons. But let's first look at the timing of this prayer. As I mentioned, this is on the heels of the discussion that he had with the disciples in the upper room. So the struggle, the, the, the sorrow, what they're anticipating, and, and, and the instructions that he has given all flesh out now in him going to the Father and not just praying for himself, but also praying for those very same disciples. All right. Secondly, then... Um, the, the reason he is praying, um, I would say, is twofold. Number one, he's praying because he loves the Father. He loves the Father. And um, in loving the Father, he longed for the will of the Father. I think one of the beautiful things that we have seen so far in the Gospel of John, not just the fact that Jesus performs miracles, but this interplay with the Godhead. Jesus is talking about the Father, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and there is this, this relationship that's being fleshed out for us and this interplay that's being fleshed out for us in the pages of this gospel. In particular, as we come to this prayer, we see the love that Jesus has for his Father, and that love is fleshed out by desiring to do his will. So when Jesus prays, it, it's, it's not the, to lay out a list of, 
of things that are, you know, his Christmas list, so to speak, you know, his desires. His prayer is simply his aligning of himself and his desires to the desires of his Father. Now, we know from the prayer of Jesus in, in the garden that he was wrestling in his humanity about what he was facing, right? Then he says, not my will, but what? Right? Thine, or yours be done. And so we see that, that we see this real picture of, of this, this full Jesus, this God-man wrestling with what his father was calling him to do, and he is determined that he is going to do that. So he loves the father. Secondly, the reason Jesus prays is because it was the pattern of his ministry. Um, after speaking to people about God, Jesus went to speak um, uh, to God about people. That was a common pattern. And what's interesting is that he's not the only one that did that. The Old Testament prophets would do that. Abraham, Moses would do that. Amos, Jeremiah would do that. And ultimately, we could say, not only does Jesus do this, but ultimately the apostles would do this. So it, it's what shaped the prophetic ministry in the Old Testament. It's what shaped Jesus' ministry, but it's also what shaped the apostles' ministry. And ultimately, it's what should shape our ministry. It's the Word of God and it's prayer. It's telling people about God and talking to God then about people. It's that, that kind of you know, interaction that we have, this constant interaction. And so it was just part of the pattern of his ministry. So for him to turn to his father in this particular time of struggle and preparation was natural for him. Now understand, Jesus probably had some other long prayers, right? He went away, you know, out into a mountain for the night to pray. He probably had some long prayers, but we have this one recorded for us. So God in his wisdom has given us this one so that we can study, that we can see all that Jesus is doing in this prayer. Now, what does Jesus pray for? Let's kind of home in now to these uh, few verses. What does Jesus pray for in verses 1 through 5? There's really one request. It's one thing that he's asking for, and it's this, that he would be glorified. Oh, I didn't realize I had this. I'm sorry. All right, what does Jesus pray for? That he would be glorified. He says, glorify your son. Glorify me. So the, the core of his prayer here was that the father would glorify the son. Now that sounds very self-serving, doesn't it? It sounds like it's all about me. Now, is this simply puffed up self-glory? as if Jesus was simply wanting to gain the accolades of men and of the Father? Of course, the answer is no. God is not, glory, I should say, is not something that we give to God. Glory is revelation of God to us. just want you to think through that. Glory is the Greek word doxa. That's from where we get the word, you know, doxology, okay? Um, and it essentially means this, to appear and to have an opinion. Now, there's a lot more to it than that, but th these are the ideas. To, to, to talk about the glory of someone is to make that person known. It is for that person's opinion to be on display. So to put it in tangible terms, the word glory means to consider what one thinks 
about someone or something. So if I want to communicate to you that someone in this room should be honored, I'm trying to paint a picture in your mind about their, or about your opinion of them. So I can talk this person up and say, I've got this person who's coming and they've done this and they've done this and they've done this, and your opinion now is increasing, increasing, increasing. And the idea here is, is that the glory of Jesus then is going to be put on display. His glory, who he is, is going to appear. He's going to be revealed. He's going to be manifested. He's going to be made known to the world. And as a result of him being made known, an opinion about him is going to take place. Now we know that, that opinion is not simply an opinion of the world. It is an opinion of those who would be his followers. Because those who are part of the world, who have not been regenerated and who will not be regenerated, will not see Jesus for who he is. If they would, they would embrace him. They would love him. Now, it reminds me of Psalm 24. We began with this. Psalm 24, verse 8. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So who is this son of God that is to be glorified? All right? It's Jesus. And as Jesus is praying, he is praying for himself. And he is praying for his glory to be revealed. For who he is to be put on display. And so there's a sense in which he is being unveiled. And he wants to be unveiled. That his his character and who he is and what he is going to accomplish is going to be made known for all to see. And so there is a sense then that the glory of the sun was veiled and that it needed to be unveiled. And it's interesting as you go through the Gospels because it's like Jesus says, you know, I want to reveal my glory, but my glory hasn't been revealed. And then he talks about the glory having been revealed. So it's kind of like this partial glory being there and there's a full glory that's still yet to come. And that's what he's praying ultimately about. Have you ever been in a large gathering where, where people are being honored and you don't know much of the people and they talk a person up and say, this person's accomplished this, this person's accomplished this, and you know, all these accolades. And then you know, would so-and-so come up and this person gets up and starts walking up and you look at them and you think, that's the person they're talking about? And yeah, that's the person who is being honored for all the things that they had done although they may not seem like they would be the person to do that. And that's the idea. There's something about who Jesus is that is still veiled at this point. And yet he's praying about being unveiled, about being put on display. Connect the dots here, about being lifted up, right? And think about what John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold! Why, why behold? Because he's going to be put on display. And what's the significance about that? Is it just a, a man hanging on a tree? Or is it the Son of God as the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for all to see and for him to be made known and for his reputation to be seen? Now, question now is this, what are we to make of Jesus' request to be glorified? How does the glorification um, take place? And to answer that, 
Um, I want you to notice three aspects now of Jesus' self-glory. Three aspects of Jesus' self-glory. First one is this. The aim of Jesus' glory. The aim. And I want us to focus now here at verse 1. Because Jesus comes and says, glorify your son. Get this, that the son may glorify you. Why does Jesus want this request to be answered? Why does Jesus want to be glorified? What's the ultimate purpose? What is he saying? So that you, Father, can be glorified. It's the glory of the Father that is his aim. And so he's ultimately longing that the invisible God should be seen for who he really is. That in Jesus, his own self-glorification, the glory of the Father would be on display. And so man is, is so attracted to creation. Now, I just want to just tell you something. It, you know, Randy, my friend, came here last week, and I was reminded about how beautiful the Bay Area is. How many of you think the Bay Area is beautiful? If you lived outside of the Bay Area and you came to the Bay Area, you'd say, wow, this is really beautiful. Especially if you lived in Michigan, where when they say, hey, you know, there's a, there's a ski hill up the road. And the ski hill up the road is like maybe about this high off the ground, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's all man-made. And it's flat. And there might be a couple of rolling hills here. But you come out here to California and you get the beauty of the hillside. You get the beauty of the ocean. You got the beauty of the bay. You've got all these different climates going on. And just a few hours, you know, you're in the valley. Then you can go up to Yosemite and you can go different places and see the redwoods. I mean, there's so much going on around here. It is staggering. And man is so easily attracted to creation. That's not a bad thing. The problem is often it just stops there, right? We see a flower. We see a bird in flight. We see uh, the current of a river. We, we hear the laughter of children. And our hearts are warmed by what we hear and what we see. But Jesus is eager that we not only see creation, but that we see the creator. Behind that creation, I mean, when you go and you stand at the top of the mountain, you're looking over San Francisco, there's a lot of things you can think about, but one of the things you should be thinking about as you look at the beauty is that, that God is absolutely incredible in his creation. If you stand at, at Niagara Falls, if you've ever done that, and you stand there at the brink of the water, you're overcome with the power and the majesty and the glory of God. Because that creation is screaming at you, the creator. And so how does this unveiling or glorifying take place. And this is where we, you know, we turn to a passage here, um, you know, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the, uh, the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. And th the point there is that you look at creation, you look at the heavens, you look at the sun moving across the sky and you come to this conclusion that there's something behind or behind all that, some, some creator that has created this that deserves glory. It's pointing to him. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says this, 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in, that, in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So, you know, God says through Paul's writing here that all of creation is, is given then so that man can clearly see that there is a creator. But ultimately we see in that passage, what does man do? He, he hardens his heart and he, he, he rejects what God has revealed. And so God gives him over to those things. And the point here, though, is that that's the purpose of creation is for us to look at and say, wow. But then once we say, wow, is to do what? Is to look at the creator. So we get an opinion of God based on looking at the creation. But that's general revelation. And the theme of the Father's glorification is woven throughout John's gospel. So there's this glory that comes from looking at the natural world, but there's also this glory that is on display for us in the gospel of John in particular. We're just going to look. We could go other places, but we'll stick with John. So jump back with me. We're just going to leaf through John's gospel here. John chapter 11 and verse 4. We saw... Uh, we, we see this glory when Martha and, and Mary send Jesus news of Lazarus' illness. He's not dead yet. Verse 4 of John 11. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is what? For the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then jump down now to chapter 13 and verse 31. Here Jesus is in the upper room. And um, he's, he's washed his disciples' feet. They've shared the Last Supper together. And Judas has left. And John tells us that when he had gone out, talking about Judas, this is verse 31, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man, what? Glorified. And God is glorified in him. Again, Jesus is glorified. The Father is glorified. Okay? Jump down to 14, verse 13. This is in response to Philip's request to show us the Father. And Jesus responds by saying, whatever you ask in my name, verse 13, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Okay? Then we have the analogy of the vine and the branches. Chapter 15 and verse 8. Jesus says this, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. So the aim of Jesus is, is at the heart of his ministry. It is what he is driven by. It is what, what motivates him to endure suffering, shame, and a bloody death, ultimately a death on the cross. And so this, this theme of glorification is all part of the fabric of John's gospel. And so here it is where we enter the story. For we are also called to honor and glorify the Father in our lives, right? This is not just some unique thing for Jesus. We are also called to do the same thing. It is our motivation, first of all, for reaching others with the gospel. Write down 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that uh, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify God on the day of visitation. So your, your righteous living in front of those who are abusing you is a means by which you are glorifying God. It's also our motivation for holiness. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you uh, have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. 
talking there about practical holiness, the living of our lives, the things we choose to do. It's also the overarching motivation and aim of every Christian's life. 1 Corinthians 10.31, probably a verse you learned as a teenager or a young person. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to what? The glory of God. Okay. Now, we, the thing is, we, we, we know this expression probably so well that we don't understand the impact of it, what it's all about. Is it your aim to glorify the Father with your life, to pursue holiness for His namesake, to live honorable and obedient lives in the context of evildoers so that the glory of God can be seen? Now, it's, it's the beginning of our church's mission statement. It's our ultimate goal. If you look over here, right? Gateway Bible Church, what? Exists to glorify God. In one sense, that's all we need to say. Okay? Now, for purposes of clarity, for purposes of helping us understand how we do that, we add to that then by knowing and applying and proclaim the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is the, this is the beginning point. We glorify God, and we do it this way. And so we say to not only us as a church, but to uh, every individual here, my prayer and my passion for you would be this, that you would come to God saying, God, I exist to glorify you. And that is why I'm committed to learning, uh, sorry, knowing, applying, and proclaim the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is where we enter in. This is part of our passion. This is what we are called to be doing, just like Jesus is. But get this, there's also um, something here. Um, well, this, this passage ultimately is about Jesus' own glorification. Um, it's Jesus' aim to glorify his Father, but it's also our, our aim then to glorify the Father, and we certainly can be pursuing that. The difference is that we are sinful, and we, we fall, and we fail, and we need to recognize then how do we reconcile that with the Father Jesus, of course, um, was, was functioning in perfect harmony with his father, but he was still coming to his father in prayer. This was important to him. It was important to him that he would be glorified ultimately so that the father would be glorified. It was important to him that, that man's opinion of him would be right so that man's opinion of the father would be right, that his obedience would reflect that to mankind ultimately on the cross. All right, That's the first thing. The second thing then is this. The arena now of Jesus' glory. Where does this glory take place? Based on these verses, as Jesus prays, he talks about three different places, three different arenas of um, his own glory. And the first uh, arena would be heaven. And what I'm saying here is this, that the glory of Jesus is the heartbeat of heaven. Look, if you would, please, at verse 5. And he says, and now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you when? Before the world existed. Okay, where is that? Well, we'll use the word heaven, okay? Eternity past. The point is it is an other world before the world was created, right? It is that place where he and the Father resided before the world was created. So, where was Jesus with the Father before the world existed? He was in eternity past in that place called heaven. So 
how was Jesus glorified in heaven? Huh, okay. Let's look at a few texts to kind of think through that. Um, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 gives us a little insight, beginning at verse 5. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in, earth, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, what? To the glory of God the Father. See the connection here. He was in heaven. He was in heaven in all his splendor. And in order for him to come down, what did he have to do? He had to set aside willfully some of his divine attributes. He had to take upon himself the form of a servant. He had to be found in, in the likeness of men, in human form. He humbled himself. So by virtue of what he had to do and to come to this earth, we get an understanding of where he was coming from. He left heaven to come here. Now notice also the intimate love of the Godhead in heaven. In chapter 17 of John's Gospel, in verse 24, Father, he says, this is still part of the prayer, but it's a little later on. He says, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Ah, you loved me before the foundation of the world. There is this intimacy that was already at play before the world was created. So there is something going on in heaven with the Godhead here that is important. The glory of Jesus was present in eternity past. Now also understand that the redemptive plan of the Godhead was set forth in heaven. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And then we have Peter, in 1 Peter 1.20, saying this, And he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. What is that word manifest? His glory is on display. So here he is in heaven. But he has now come to this earth, and he's come to this earth for the purpose of being made manifest. So Jesus is praying that he would be restored to that place of glory with the Father. That the Word who was God, who was with God, but who willingly, humbly came to the earth as the Word made flesh, would now be glorified and return once again to the place of honor in heaven. And I would say this, to a place of greater honor in heaven. And the reason I say greater honor in heaven is because the Son came down and, and fulfilled the necessary uh, responsibility of going to that cross and providing that way of salvation for mankind through his death on the cross. But also we must note that what was established in heaven is the heartbeat of the Godhead. So this is the Godhead at work. This is the Godhead coming together and saying, let us create this earth. But also with the knowledge of how that creation would respond to him 
that God had already determined the plan of redemption. So all of this is part of the heartbeat of heaven that's just being fleshed out here. It all happened before the world was created. So Jesus' glory was fully present there in eternity past. Secondly here, second arena of Jesus' glory would be the hour of the cross. All right? It's the arena of the cross. It's the arena, in particular, of the hour. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And if you read the Gospels, and in particular if you've read John's Gospel, you will see this thread of this word hour going through the Gospel. Um, it is, you might want to call it an elastic hour. Okay, It's not an hour of time. It is more of a season of events that will take place. It would encompass the fact that he is going to now be handed over, that he would be put on trial, that he would be beaten, that he would suffer, that he would go to a cross, that he would die a bloody death as a sacrifice. That hour is, is all referring to that whole, that whole process. So I say it's elastic in the sense that it kind of stretches over that time. And, and a quick review of John's gospel simply will reveal a number of places where we see this word hour being brought up. Let me just quickly run, them, run through them with you. At the wedding of Cana, John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus tells his mother, my hour has not yet come, right? To the woman of Samaria, that would be the woman of, uh, at the well, he says, chapter 4, verse 21, the hour is coming. To the Jews who were seeking to kill him, Jesus says, the hour is coming. That's chapter 5, verse 25. John inserts for the reader in chapter 7, verse 30, this. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because the hour had not yet come. Then Jesus, teaching in the temple, and, and the soldiers who were seeking to arrest him um, were there, but they could not because, we're told, the hour had not yet come, chapter 8, verse 20. But then a significant shift takes place in chapter 12, verse 23, when a group of Greeks come and they want to ask Jesus some questions. And verse 23 tells us this, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This hour has come. It is right here. It's present. It's at work. It's in motion. It is happening. And we get a window into the passion of Jesus um, and to do what the Father had willed him to do. Look, if you would, please, at John chapter 12, now in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And this is just after he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? You know, implied there is no. He's not saying, save me from this hour. He knows this is what he came to do. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So you just... These themes of glory and now the hour and, and Jesus' death ultimately on the cross and what he came to, they're all just kind of coming together here in this prayer. And Jesus meets his disciples in the upper room, chapter 13, verse 1. He says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, 
to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the end of what he had come to do. Then, of course, last time we were together, we, we kind of touched on this, this illustration that Jesus, is, Jesus uses. Verse uh, 21 of chapter 16, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born of the world. I'm, just, I'm walking us through for a reason here to say that what, what Jesus is praying about when he says the hour has come, it's all been crescendoing here. This is about to take place. This time of sorrow is about to happen. And that brings us to the point where Jesus is praying to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, just, just to help us get some perspective, imagine, if you would, please, that a man is at the Olympics, and he's running a race, and he ends up getting to the finish line. He crosses the line first. He won the race. But it's a little while after when he actually goes up to the medal stand to get that medal, right? When Jesus hung on the cross, he suffered. He said, it is finished. He breathed his last, and he died. He crossed the finish line. There's a sense then that his resurrection is that moment when he's standing on that podium, and he's receiving his medal, so to speak, okay? He is being glorified. He is being recognized. He is being put on display once again in what he accomplished on the cross. Now I want you to notice verse 4 of our text. Here's what Jesus says to the Father about what he has done. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, what was that work? It was marked by two things, authority and obedience. The Father gave his Son authority, and Jesus says, with the authority that you gave me to do these certain things, I have accomplished them. So Jesus is praying for the Father to glorify the Son in the hour of the cross, to unveil himself in all his majesty, to be lifted up and put on display for all to see. And there is a sense, friends, um, in which we can pray, Father, glorify me. This is not heresy. This is not self-glory. But if we're sons and daughters of God, there is some sense that, that we who really are veiled to the world around us can be put on display. And that God would put us on display. So we can pray, Father, bring me to the day when I will be unveiled as your child so that you can be revealed to those around me through my life. God, my desire is to bring glory to you. Well, how do I bring glory to you that who I am because of you is put on display? Now, you know, we're not Jesus. We fail, but we are followers of Jesus, right? And we want to be on display so that others can see, hmm, there's something different about you. Hmm, why is it that you are thinking through those things that way? Why is it that when you're going through your trial or your difficulty that you're able to consistently move with joy? And even though there may be some discouragement and stuff, it seems like you're not falling apart, but you, you have some 
some grasp on what's going on, and that can be very attractive to other people, and it can be a, a window into understanding what God has done in the life to change that person. And so we say, God, you know what? Whatever you desire to do in me so that you can be glorified, do it, right? Give me the strength now to reflect what you've called me to in that circumstance. So this glory then, the arena of glory is heaven. It's also the cross, but now it moves from heaven to the cross and down now to um, the church because ultimately the glory of Jesus is the hope of the church. So what began as a heartbeat in heaven travels through the hour of the cross to give to the church hope through eternal life. Look at verses 2 and 3. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, I just kind of divided this, this, these, this couple of verses into three parts. First of all, the gift, the gift of eternal life. The Father unveils Christ to all those whom he gives to Jesus. And he gives them eternal life. Now, what, what is this eternal life? It's not just the quantity of life, right? Eternal means what? Does it ever have an end? So there's a quantity factor to it, right? And isn't this the part of the, the, the purpose of John's gospel? I've written these things, given you evidence so that you would believe, and having believed what? You'd have life. He's talking there about eternal life. But it's not the quantity, it's the quality of that life. What kind of life is that? It's a life that is walking with Jesus. It is a life that is in, in tune with Jesus ultimately. Then there's the gain that kind of leads us into the next thing. And the gain here is in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So knowing Jesus and knowing the Father ultimately is this eternal life. And what is this knowledge? It's not simply an awareness of who the Father is and who Jesus is. It's not simply the gaining of information. A lot of people can get information, right? Watch the Discovery Channel. You get a lot of information about Old Testament, New Testament, what their views are and who Jesus is, right? A lot of information. Um, it's not simply knowledge that comes by virtue of experience. What I mean by that is, you know, maybe you go out one day and, and you look up into the stars and, and uh, you're, you, know, you, you have no awareness of God, but you look into the stars and you look at the stars and you're convinced, ah, God exists. And now... You, you say, well, I'm going to follow God, but I don't want to read the Bible. I've had my experience with God. Don't mess it up with doctrine. Okay? So this knowledge is not knowledge that comes apart from his word. That's the point. It's the knowledge that is fed and nourished and, and uh, comes at by virtue of the revealed word. It's also, though, not simply a knowledge of God alone. In other words, I just have this idea of who God is. Well, if you know who God is, that has impact on you. All right? So if God is holy, guess what? I am not. All right? If God is all-knowing, guess what? I'm not. And that should have an effect on me and what I think and what I do. And, and so just knowing God helps me understand myself. So it is, it is a personal encounter with God in which because of his holiness, we become aware of our sin and consequently our deep personal need. And then by his grace, we are turned to Christ who ultimately is our Savior. And then there's the goal, and that's the majesty of Christ that is, that is certainly 
put on display. He is fully on display for us. Now, I've, I've walked you through his prayer, just trying to show you that, first of all, that the request is this, that, that I as the Son be glorified. But, but the, the I as the Son be glorified is, is not alone. It is a glorification that has an aim to bring glory to the Father. It is a glorification that takes place in heaven, takes place on the cross, and now is fleshed out into the church, into the lives of those who are followers with eternal life. And it's an eternal life that is a, an eternal life of knowing the Father and knowing the Son in an ongoing, growing, intimate way. That's what he's praying for, that these things would take place, that, that his his glorification would result in these things. Now, I want to step back a little bit, and I want to think finally here about attitudes that come out of this prayer that I think are very helpful for us. I really spent a lot of this time kind of mining this passage. Now I want to reflect over it again, and I want us to think about some attitudes of Jesus' glory that will help us to think about how we pray. First of all, um, divine harmony, okay? One of the things that to me is amazing is that Jesus in his prayer is simply confirming what the Father desires to take place. And it's interesting how you see the interplay of the the God here. The Father gives to Jesus, the Son gives his life for all. The Holy Spirit breathes new life into the believer. So the character of the Godhead um, working together to complete uh, the the, the plan that was uh, determined before the creation of the world that, that is all working together. Jesus is not jostling for self-glory. There's no undermining of roles going on here. There's no getting angry because the work given um, uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't appreciated or wasn't liked. There's this wonderful harmony in the Godhead. And it's a picture of divine harmony that is helpful for us. He wants us to pursue that kind of harmony. He wants us to pursue that kind of unity. Are we desiring to do the will of the Father? Are we desiring to place ourselves under his word? Are we willing and eager for reconciliation and forgiveness of sin? Or are we so consumed with self-glory that we don't want to consider our great need and opportunity to glorify the Father in all we do? See, here's the thing. Jesus was committed to this divine harmony. And the question for us is this. Are we committed to the divine will? Are we committed... As individuals, are we committed as a church to doing what God has called us to do? How do we determine that? Well, we, we, we say the Word of God must be the basis for all we do. We must turn to the Word of God to determine how we think, how we live, how we fashion our decisions together. And that's why we come together united around Christ, but Christ, of course, is revealed where? He's revealed in the Word of God. Okay? So we, we, want, we want that harmony to take place, and we want to have that similar harmony that Jesus had uh, with the Godhead. Secondly, it's this, personal responsibility. Personal responsibility. Jesus, having received the res- responsibility of the cross, takes that responsibility seriously. It didn't come without suffering. It didn't come without those closest to him being confused or betraying him or denying him even. But he embraced his responsibility with dignity, grace, and an impeccable honor. And we've been given personal responsibilities from God, too. We've been given a responsibility, if you're married, to your spouse, to help grow them, to help nurture them, to help move them along. As parents, to, to, with our children, to help them in the ways of God. 
diligent and effective neighbors in, uh, you know, in, our, in our particular neighborhood for the glory of God, to see our moral proximity uh, for the glory of God, that wherever God has placed us is the arena where God is placing us for his glory and for his, his will and his gospel to go out. Um, it's a responsibility to partner together with others who also desire to glorify God, right? So this, this, this week, it was interesting. I was talking with uh, some pastors, and uh, we were talking about what missions and why we do missions. And one of the things that came up was we have a responsibility. It, it's not just about going to other countries and, wow, look at this country. Isn't it great? And we get to go on a trip and all that kind of stuff. It's like we have a responsibility to use our gifts for the glory of God to help those who do not have the benefit of what we have. And to not do it is a shirking of responsibility. And that's ultimately, when I think about it, it's what drives me. It's like, why would I go and spend time teaching national pastors? Because I feel I have a responsibility to do that. Why is it that you and I do things for the glory of God? It's because we have a, we, we have a responsibility given to us by God to do those things. It's what pushes and drives us. So there's this personal responsibility, and Jesus took his responsibility seriously. Complete obedience. What would disobedience look like with Jesus? Oh, you know, I was, I was whipped. That's enough. I don't think I'll go to the cross. Isn't this sufficient? Do I have to go all the way to the cross? They say that's ludicrous. But oftentimes that's how we think about obedience, isn't it? I mean, that's, it's natural. Partial obedience, right, is not complete obedience. He didn't change the game plan. And, you know, he said, Father, this is too hard. This, this cup I have, can I, you know, can I change it? Can we do something different? No. Yeah, he, he experienced the suffering and the difficulty of it, but he was determined to do the Father's will and to be obedient to it. In fact, we see that, that resolute, you know, setting his face toward Jerusalem. He spread the good news about the kingdom. He endured the hatred and the scorn of the religious leadership. He suffered the beatings. He hung on a cross. That was all because he desired to do the will of his Father, and he was going to obey completely the, the purposes of the Godhead. And friends, we've got to be careful. We've got to learn from this to say as we pray, we want to make sure that we're praying that, that we will be obedient to what he is calling us to do. Okay. Next thing is this, humble submission. Humble submission. Um, look, if you would, please, back at verse 5. And just change the tone in which we read this verse. Jesus has been praying about glorifying himself, glorifying his Father, and it's almost like he's saying in verse 5, and now, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, just glorify me. Do your will. Whatever you have determined, whatever is our plan, Lord, I want to do that. It's the humility of Jesus that I think is pretty overwhelming. I don't think we can quite comprehend what it looks like. Let me paint a picture for you. Imagine you live in a beautiful castle on a hill with your closest friends, all the servants you need, beautiful grounds, all the comforts you can imagine. And you, you live there for years. 
And then you willingly chose to give up that place of honor and move to the dirtiest slum where the worst kind of sin and filth is present. That would be humility. A willful choice. But friends, it doesn't even come close to comparing to what Jesus has done by leaving the abode of heaven and coming to this world. Okay? It is so far removed from our comprehension, his humility. Now, even though that, that illustration may be helpful, it is woefully short. But it, it simply identifies for us the need for us then to say, Lord, we want to be humble to do your will. And oftentimes we're so satisfied with our comforts, so satisfied with the things that we have that we wouldn't even think about taking the step and going to a place of difficulty or changing our scenario because it's God's will. Now, friends, Jesus is praying for himself here. He has something to do. But ultimately, he is praying that he would be glorified, but not for himself only, but ultimately for the glory of his Father. I just want to leave you then with those three words. Listen. Listen to what Jesus says. Listen to what he is praying to his Father. Pay attention to what he is addressing and how he is addressing it. Secondly, as you do that, learn. What are you learning about your own prayer? When you come to the Father in prayer, when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer, how do you pray? Is it simply a list of your requests? Or is it glorify me? Not in the sense of I want what I want. I want to be on display. It is whatever you desire to do in me so that you can be glorified, Father, do. And the last thing here then is are you leaning. You know, the old song, some of you would remember, you know, learning to lean, I'm learning to lean on Jesus. Um, you know, Jesus here is leaning on his Father. And you know what? It's okay to lean on the Father. It's okay to not have it all together. It's okay to go into that quiet place and cry out to God and say, God, I need help. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do it. It's okay. In fact, it's not just okay, it's right. I want to finish here by just reading through this prayer. I wrote this to simply summarize all that was going on here so that we would get a sense of then how would we pray if we were praying like this with the principles that are here. Lord, it is my aim to glorify you in my life I know that unlike your son, Jesus Christ, I will fail often, but his example pushes me on to pursue your glory in all that I do. Lord, glorify yourself in me. I want you to know that my life is yours to do with as you see fit. I want you to be, to be unveiled and made known to those around me as I take on the responsibilities you have given me, a husband, a parent, a friend, a co-worker, neighbor, fellow student, teammate, BART writer, carpool user, fill in the blank, right? Lord, in every area of my life, help me to be about the work you have called me to do, that 
my will would be conformed to your will, that I would be obedient to all of your counsel, commands, and instructions, that I would be faithful to take on the responsibilities you lay on my shoulders, that I would be humble and submissive to your perfect will. But ultimately, and only one thing is truly important in my life, that you are made known among the peoples, that your reputation and man's opinion of you is rightly reflected. Now, friends, there's a lot to mine out of this prayer. There's a lot to mine out of what Jesus is saying here, but hopefully we've got a grasp here of Jesus simply saying, Lord, I want you to do in me what your will is, and Lord, help me to do my part as I serve as your son. So let's pray together, and let's, let's think about his prayer and what Jesus is praying. Even as we celebrate the Lord's table together, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you who are uh, believers. We practice here open communion, which means that if you are a believer, if you come to faith in Christ, um, you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We, enjoy, we invite you to join with us today. Um, but we're going to pray. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And uh, we're going to just reflect over what God is doing in our lives because of the gospel. Lord, help us today to grasp, to um, be thankful for, to revisit, Lord, um, that, that gospel moment in our lives, Lord, that time when we finally came to the place where you, you breathe life into us. And Lord, for some of us, that may have been a wrestling match. For some of us, Lord, um, it, was, it was a time when we just, we saw a fresh life because you were at work in us. Lord, I, I just ask that we would reflect on what you have done because of your cross, that because of your cross, Lord, that, that we are now um, reconciled to, to the Godhead, Lord, that we are new creatures created in you, Lord, that we now have life and we have abundant life and that you are very present with us and we have the promise of your Holy Spirit and we have the privilege of not only having your word but understanding your word because your Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. And Lord, I just, I just ask that we would step back and we would be in awe. We would take, Lord, just the, the impact of what Jesus was saying here to say, Lord, glorify yourself in us. Somehow, Lord, whatever it might be, whatever you choose for it to be, Lord, accomplish your will in your way through our lives. And Lord, recognizing that that is the, the best place that we can be. Lord, we release ourselves from the things that we are driving toward and we embrace, Lord, what you desire for us today. And so, Lord, may we come to you now with humble hearts, ready once again to remember what you've done for us on the cross. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.